Good morning. We will be in the book of Jonah, as you probably surmised from our scripture reading. I've had a cold, so I may need some extra amplification in order to make up for that. Um, Hopefully the Lord is gracious and my voice lasts through the sermon. All right, so as I was thinking about going about preaching the book of Jonah, I was thinking of all the like the songs my kids listen to about Jonah and the belly of the whale and all these cute cute little children's stories that the book of Jonah has been t- turned into and then departed into a deeper study of the book of Jonah and you find it's really not a cute story. It's a story of Jonah running from God. He's in chooses to disobey God. Um, and there's a couple interesting things as I got into the book of Jonah. So he is the, the only prophet in Israel who actually went to another nation. He didn't, I mean, he prophesied to, in Israel, but he also went to another nation. That was, that's abnormal for the, for the prophets. So he would be, you, you could consider him the first missionary to the Gentiles. Um, so to give a little background, there's not a lot of extra information about Jonah from what we have in the book of Jonah, but we do have a mention of him in 2 Kings. So if you turn with me there, 2 Kings chapter 14 Verse 20, be looking at around verse 25. But this is the other, one of the other mentions in the Old Testament of Jonah, which gives us some extra information. So 2 Kings chapter 14, starting at verse 23, tells us, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So this is the the other mention of Jonah, right? We learn he is a prophet and that he did prophesy to the nation of Israel. And what he prophesied was that the borders of Israel would be restored. And we find, if you look up some of the details there, it the borders of Israel were actually restored to where they were during the reign of Solomon, right? So one of the largest expansions. And this is also during the, you have northern and southern kingdoms, and he would be in the northern kingdom at this time. And the land that they were taking back, they were taking from the Assyrians. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So God comes to to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. Right? Go to your enemies. Go to those who 
have taken land from you and you have taken it back from them, right? So that's sort of the background setting. We don't have a specific date for when the book of Jonah was written, but from the what we know of the king that he served under that was named there in 2 Kings, it was a 41-year reign. So it was sometime during that reign of 41 years. Um, <clears throat> we also have, outside of Scripture, there have been historical, uh, they're not documents of paper, but engravings, which refer to the King Jehu of Israel paying tribute to an Assyrian ruler roughly 50 years before this, somewhere between 50 and 100 years. So Israel had been in subjection to Assyria, hence the losing the land and then regaining it. So this is not their, like, the first interaction with Assyria. is like, go preach to them. It's like, no, this, they're legitimate enemies. They have been warring with each other. Um, there's a common... If you look into what are the secular opinions on the book of Jonah... Well, it's a fish tale is what you would find. They'd say, oh, that's, that's silly. Like, you can't survive in the belly of a whale, right? Belly of a great fish, as it says. But if you believe the words of our Savior, in Matthew chapter 12, he refers to Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. I can get there. So Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Right, this is an interaction of Christ with the scribes and Pharisees. They're questioning him. And so it starts in verse 38 and says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then it goes on and talks about the Queen of the South. But it's interesting reading that. It makes me think... When we are in eternity with our Savior, there will be people from Nineveh there due to Jonah's preaching. These people who were enemies of Israel, enemies of God, had been redeemed. But Christ referred to Jonah. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, I will be the same. Um, Son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Christ believed Jonah was a true story, right? So we believe Jonah is a true story, that this is an accurate account. So getting into the text here, verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Jonah says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, right? So this is, we have that same description, Jonah, the son of Amittai, that was referred to in Second Kings that we looked at a little bit ago, identifying this is the same person. And it talks about the word of the Lord. And so this is referring to a divine giving of a message. 
Um, if you do a search throughout scripture, you'll find the word of the Lord being given occurs a lot in the Old Testament. There's one of the resources I saw said like 112 instances, roughly, of that. You go into the New Testament, and it drops off significantly. Um, and, it se- and if you look at the context in the New Testament, when it talks about the word of the Lord, if you look at the context, it's almost always in reference to the preaching of the gospel in the, in the New Testament. But we see in the Old Testament, it's often a prophet to go and prophesy. And you say, well, what is the, what is he to say, right? It says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. And so if you turn Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, it, it also says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So this is after he gets spit up by the fish, right? He goes through all this, and God comes to him again and says, hey, go to Nineveh. <laughs> He's like, come on, I thought I got out of this, right? Um, but then what he says is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the only message we have that Jonah actually said to them. He's like, you're going to receive judgment. That's his message. And there were a couple of other interesting things here. So the name Jonah in Hebrew means dove. We have other instances of scripture of doves, right? When Noah, after the ark, lands on ground, he sends out a dove, the dove comes back, and then he sends it out again, and it comes back with an olive branch, and he sends it out again, and it's gone, right? Um, Other references throughout the Old Testament would sort of paint this picture of innocence. Um, You also have, in the New Testament, you have the spirit descending like a dove, right? You have this picture of of innocence, of peace. And then you have his father, Amittai, which means loyal and faithful. And so you see, you have this man of peace who is the son of faithfulness, right? And Jonah was happy to be the man of peace as long as he was in Israel preaching to the Israelites good things, right? Your borders will be increased. Everybody loves me. Go to Nineveh. And I will say, you know, I know God. God is gracious. Like, he should have destroyed Israel. Um, That passage in 2 Kings said that the king continued in the sins of those before him, right? They were wicked against God, the Israelites. And yet God is gracious with them. He does not destroy them. Jonah knows God is gracious, and he is long-suffering. And if God sends him to Nineveh to preach, there's a pretty good chance there's going to be repentance. There's going to be a change. And these are his enemies, right? So he's not necessarily true to his name and his attitude towards this command from God. So the town that's mentioned in 2 Kings was Gath Heifer, um, which we do have on that little map that's up there, if you, can, if you can tell. But it is 14 miles west of the Sea of Galilee in the northern kingdom of Israel. 
which uh, some of the commentaries I was reading was, you know, whenever the, um, when the Pharisees were talking to Christ, and they said, well, no prophets ever come out of Galilee. Well, it seems that Jonah was a prophet that came out of Galilee, right? So that, and this is a, proves them to be inaccurate. And then we get into verse 2, and it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You see, if you pay attention to that word arise, you see it used quite a bit throughout the book of Jonah. Um, it's a, a call to action. You know, arise, our plain meaning is get up, right? Move, get on the go. And then he points to go to Nineveh, right? And he says it's that great city. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, or it was at the time. It's, it's not now. But it was, and as you look, it was like, well, what else do we know about Nineveh? Well, who built Nineveh? Well, this was a sort of an interesting rabbit trail to go on because Nineveh was built by a man named Nimrod, who would have been the great-grandson of Noah. So these would be a very distant relation of the Israelites, right? All of us are, everyone is descended from Noah. And so this would be Noah's great-grandson built this, this nation, this city. And of course, much time has passed since then. So modern day, where's, where would Nineveh be at today? It would be, Located in Iraq, it's across the Tigris Tigris River in Iraq, um, across from a modern-day city called Mosul. So that is the location of where Nineveh would be. And they've done a lot of archaeological digs there and found a wealth of information about Nineveh. And it talks about, you know, that great city. If we look deeper in, if you go to the end of Jonah... Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. And it says, And should I not pity Nineveh, this is God talking, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So that pointing 130,000 that don't know their left from their right hand. So that, that would be juveniles, young children. And the common thought is that would be about one-fifth of the population. So that puts the population of Nineveh at around 600,000 people, which for that time, it was quite possibly one of the largest cities in the world at that time. Hence, that great city. And we have further descriptions in the book of Jonah. In chapter 3, verse 3, it says, So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. This is after he endures being swallowed by a fish. And he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So it would take three days to cross the city. And some of the historical information about Nineveh would be it had eight miles of city walls in circumference, and those walls would have been roughly 100 feet high. And it was also surrounded by a moat that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. All right, so this is the great city. It is, it is a fortress. It is significant, the amount of people, 
their power, and they were a force to be reckoned with. They were not at the height of their power at this time, hence Israel taking some land back from them. But they were still, they were still no joke. And he says, call out against men, right? And we saw, you know, what did Jonah say? Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. So this is a pronouncement of the Lord's judgment. He is saying, you will be destroyed. And, it's, and why is that? It says, for their evil has come up before me. Looking into how the nation of Assyria conducted their business of war was um, interesting, to say the least. They were known for their brutality and their cruelty. And we think, well, war is just brutal and cruel. Well, not only would they come and conquer, but after they had conquered, they would then proceed to torture through many various means, uh, flaying people, skinning them alive, putting them on pikes, um, burning them, just doing all kinds of terrible, cruel things in a manner of psychological warfare. It was common for nations to see Assyria's attacking. Let's just surrender, because we probably can't beat them, and if we lose, they're going to just... It's going to be terrible. It was better to surrender oftentimes than to try to fight. So they're known for this evil. And as most, and as all nations outside of Israel were, they were also guilty of idol worship. They worshipped gods of war. Um, and many of these, like, these stories of the horrendous torture are, we know about these things because they have stone engravings that they have found in Nineveh depicting these scenes of what they had done. They were so proud of it that they would engrave it in stone, what they had done. They took joy and pleasure in the amount of cruelty that they inflicted on people. And this, uh, their evil has come up before me. If you recall, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, it talks about, uh, the Lord says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. There are references throughout scripture of the, when there's about to be the destruction of a city or a nation, that there is an outcry that has come up to the Lord, that he hears that outcry and he responds. And you see that that is the case here with, with Nineveh. On the chapter and on to verse 3, not chapter 3. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Right? So we see, you know, God commands Jonah, arise. Well, says Jonah rose up. <laughs> he got up. He took action, but he ran the other way, right? He rose to flee to Tarshish. So this map that we have here, the city that's believed to be Tarshish would be in the nation of Spain which is essentially at that time would be the farthest west they were like aware of that was commonly settled area. 
there's some dispute whether, like, well, was it actually the city in Spain or not? But regardless, he's going as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can, or at least that's his goal. And it's amazing just looking at that map, like how small the distance is for Israel and Joppa and Gath Heifer and how far away Tarshish is, right? His goal is to get as far away from this as he possibly can. And the, the name Tarshish means she will shatter. It means subjection. So John would rather flee to a city which is known for subjection than to go and prophesy to Nineveh and see God have mercy on them. And he is running from the presence of the Lord, right? Preached uh, a month or so ago on Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, which apparently Jonah had forgotten about or just chose to ignore, tells us, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There is nowhere that Jonah can flee from the presence of the Lord. And you see that reference, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord several times. You have it here, you have it later when it's found out that he is the reason why the ship is going down. They're like, well, what are you doing? I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Well, and it tells us, well, they knew that. They knew he had, he had already told them he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And maybe it's this concept of, well, the God of Israel dwells in Israel, so I'm going to flee from Israel. I'm going to flee from his presence there. Well, that is like a special indwelling of God, but God is in all places. It's interesting trying to explain the presence of God to my son. He's, he's four, he's going to be five soon. But he's, well, how do I, I can't see God. How do I know he's here? Like, oh, look around you. Look at what is here. How did this come to be? Who made it? Um, can you see the wind, right? Can you see sounds? Like the, your, your ability to see something is not the only indication of its presence. And he still doesn't have that down, but <laughs> I'm tr- we're trying. <laughs> but we know God is omnipresent. He is in all places. It's impossible to flee from his presence. It is silliness for Jonah to think he can remove himself from God's presence. And as we go further, we find it becomes obvious to Jonah that he cannot flee from God's presence. So he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which is a port in Israel on the Mediterranean coast. A modern-day city would be Jaffa. It was Joppa means beautiful. It would have been, if you look throughout your Old Testament, you'll find Joppa was the port where the cedars of Lebanon came in when they built the temple. 
right? This is where, it's a major port. This is the big one where all the important things come in and go out from, which helps explain as you go through this passage, you'll see the sailors that Jonah ends up with appear to be pagans. Um, they, they do not know the God of Israel, and yet they are sailing out of a port in Israel, right? So they, they are on this journey. This is a port they're just visiting. They don't, they're not Israelites, And as I mentioned earlier, you know, it says, well, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Why is he fleeing? In the beginning of chapter 4 of Jonah, it says, after in the end of chapter 3, it says, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my Yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Right? That is why he wants to flee from the presence of the Lord, because he knows that God is slow to anger, that he is gracious, that he is merciful. And if he goes and does this job in Nineveh, there's a good chance that they will repent and they will not be destroyed. And that's not what he wants. That's why he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord or trying to. And in the verse four, it says, but the Lord, right? You have this description of like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to flee your presence. And it says, but the Lord, and he hurled a great wind upon the sea, right? That, that word hurled is a nice descriptor of just the like sudden intensity of it being thrown upon him. And it says, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and the ship threatened to break up. And we see in Psalm 107, verses 23 to 29, we have a description of the sovereignty of God over these things. And it says, Psalm 107, verse 23 says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. You have this picture in the psalm of God's authority over the sea, and we are seeing that played out here in Jonah. And it's so great, and it says, so that the ship threatened to break up, right? This is not just a little, a little gale. This is an intense storm to such a point that the ship is likely to be destroyed, costing the lives of all the men on board. And it says, then the mariners were afraid, in verse 5, and each cried out to his God, Right? 
men who go to sea on a regular basis, who are on sailing ships, who have experience with that, are not easily made afraid when storms come because they have been through it before. They know that they can weather it, right? They have learned how to handle storms. And so when you see the mariners were afraid, it gives us an indication of just how intense the storm was. It was intense enough that it brought fear to seasoned sailors. And it says, and each cried out to his God. Right? One indication here that these were not believers of the one true God, that these were believers in multiple different things. They were, they were pagans. They would pray to whatever God they thought might save them at the time. And it says, each cried out to his God. So they had multiple gods. They're like, I'm going to pray to, uh, I'll pray to Baal, and you pray to Molech, and uh, you go get covered by uh, Asherah. Um, you know, we'll all do our little thing and hope one of them, maybe somebody will respond. And it says, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So this is such a desperate situation, right? So they're on a trip. Jonah is not the only reason for their trip. They didn't say, hey, we're going to take this guy to Tarshish and he's going to pay us a pile of money, right? They were already headed there. They had cargo to be delivered. And Jonah was just long for the ride. And so when they start throwing the cargo overboard, this is like, this is our only source of income here. This is such a desperate, desperate situation that we are willing to give up finances, our money, in order to try to survive. And you see, we recently did a study through the book of Acts. And in the end of Acts, you have Paul being transported to to Rome, and you see a similar scenario, right? The ship is on the water, it's so rough, they start chucking things over to try to, to get there, to not be destroyed. And it's a common scenario in a really, really rough sea situation. It's a desperate situation. And But then it says, in the second half of verse 5, it says, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. It's, it's just an interesting, like, um, comparison there. Like, it's such a rough storm, they're throwing everything over the side, Jonah's asleep in the bottom of the ship. And you... When you get into the Gospels, you see there's a similar instance of this with Christ, where he is in a ship that is on rough waters, and he's asleep. But I think the reason for their sleeping are the exact opposite, right? Christ is the Lord of the storm. He doesn't have to worry about it. He can sleep on the bottom of the ship. He has no concerns. Jonah, on the other hand, is probably exhausted from all his running and being in sin against God, right? He's, sin is exhausting, I guess is one way to put it. It's hard work running from God. So he's tired. So he's sleeping in the bottom of the ship. And it's to the point where in verse 6 it says, The captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The New American Standard says it, words it a little differently that I thought was slightly clear. It says, So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? 
Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so they will not perish, so that we will not perish. It's like, how are you still asleep? This doesn't make any sense. How are you down here sleeping? And as you look at your text, you'll see, call out to your God. You see that G on God is a little G. It's not the big G. This is not the one true God. They are, as it said earlier in verse 5, was said, each cried out to his God. Again, little G there. So they're all praying to their, to their idols, to their gods. And he's saying, Jonah, everybody's out here praying to their God. You need to get up and do the same thing. Maybe yours will do something, right? We're all giving it a shot. We're throwing everything on the wall, seeing what will stick. And you're sleeping down here. Get up and pray to your God, right? Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Generally, the gods that they worshipped were thought to be petty, were thought to be self-centered, and it would not be uncommon for them to be ignored when they pray, right? Well, they should be ignored because they're false gods. They don't exist. But he's saying, hey, none of ours are answering. Maybe yours will answer, right? Get up and pray. They are desperate polytheists, right? They are willing to worship any god that will work for them. So, hey, maybe yours will work. And so then Jonah's now with the rest of the men. We get to verse 7, and it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. You're probably familiar with the casting of lots occurring in Scripture, Um, It was a common method used to discover the will of of the gods, right? And it was something that they did throughout Scripture. Even in the book of Acts, that is how they choose the apostle to replace Judas. That is how they call Matthias to be an apostle, is with the casting of lots. There, were, there are other stories in Scripture where they determine who's going to go up against the city out of the tribes by casting lots on it, right? So lots was something that was used in Scripture to determine the will of God, and it was a common practice beyond the Israelites outside of there. And we see that it falls on Jonah, right? And their theory here, I think, is... This storm is so intense, there's a reason for this, right? And that was the common idea. It's like if you're experiencing difficulty, it's because you've done something. You see that, you read through the book of Job. Job's friends are like, you did something to get all this hardship. Like you, you have done something. And so they're, they're in this ship and they're, all of them are together and say, okay, somebody did something, let's figure it out. We're going to cast lots. Who is it? And it falls on Jonah. So somebody's guilty bringing this calamity down on all of them. And it falls on Jonah, right? Points to him. And then you have their question, their interrogation in verse 8. It says, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? 
So they didn't know a whole lot about him at this point. He had come on the ship, he had gone down below, he'd fallen asleep. We learn later in this first chapter that they apparently did know he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But that was about the extent of their knowledge of him. So they're, they're, they're asking more. like, And so he goes on and he confesses, right? In verse 9 there, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So there's significance in him saying that this is, I fear the Lord, who is the God of heaven, and who made the sea and the dry land. Typically, the gods that they would have been worshiping, you would have a land god, and you would have a sea god, and you'd have a god of heaven. But you wouldn't have, they didn't have a god who had absolute authority over all things. They had gods for each, each realm. And he said, no, I worship the Lord. And I think there's, on one hand, we, we've, I've talked before, when, you, when he says, I fear the Lord, you see Lord is all in caps there. And so that would be, the common language there would be Yahweh or Jehovah. So he's not saying, he's not saying Lord, he is using God's name for himself. Which sort of separates this, I think. It, it makes it clear if as you're reading this, and anytime you see Lord in the big L-O-R-Ds, you realize he's saying Jehovah. There's a personal name applied to the God of Jonah because they're all worshiping their little G-gods while he's worshiping Jehovah, right? And that it's a difference. It, it sets that apart. And, he, and in there he says, he calls himself a Hebrew, right? And... He's from Israel. Why didn't he say, well, I'm from Israel. I am an Israelite. That generally speaking, the Jews, when they would refer to themselves amongst the Gentiles, would refer to themselves as Hebrews. That's how they would address themselves to the non-Israelite world. Um, hence the use of him saying he's a Hebrew. And he says, I fear the Lord, which implies a reverence, an honor, a worship, proper acknowledgement of who God is. And it would seem Jonah's not doing a very good job of that at this point. He is not fearing God very well, or at least not up to this point, right? He's trying to flee from God. So he gives a, he tells them who, who he is and who his God is, right? That describes of what people are you, right? They are the people who worship the one true God. And then in verse 10 it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So apparently he had said, Well, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord when he got on the boat. He didn't describe who this God was that he was fleeing from. They were like, well, yeah, okay. Uh, most of our gods don't really have any power, so get on the ship. We're not too worried about it. Like, oh, wait. Your God is the one who controls the heavens, the sea, and the land? He can do, he's sovereign over all things? Okay, we got a problem here. 
Like, that is why we're in such trouble. That's why they're exceedingly afraid. Like, so wait, your God is the one who controls everything, and you decided to flee from him, and you thought was a good idea. Why? Um, exceedingly afraid. And they say, what is this that you have done? And it's interesting that they're not angry at him. They are afraid, right? They're, they're beyond being angry at him. Like, this is such a dire situation that they have now recognized, well, yes, this is a situation that has been brought upon us by a vengeful God. There's no escaping his wrath, right? They can't row to land and hope to get away from it. So Jonah's punishment has become their punishment. So he had left out that little part about who this God was that he was fleeing from. They may not have allowed him on board if he had given them that information in the beginning. And that's where we see he had already told them that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So they had that information prior to this interrogation. So on to verse 11, it says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So as they're doing this interaction with them, the storm's getting stronger. The sea is getting rougher. So Jonah knows his God. He should know what to do. And it's interesting, they say, what shall we do with you? And I I think back on like, so the prophets of Baal with, uh, it's Elijah, right? And how do they try to get their God's attention while they're cutting themselves and they're doing all kinds of terrible things, right? They're trying to get their God's attention. So like, well, maybe, maybe we need to do something bad to Jonah. You know, maybe we whip him, maybe we cut him or something like that. Maybe we can exact a pound of flesh from him that will then appease his God and this storm will stop, right? Because they're familiar with their pagan gods. They are not familiar with the God of the Bible. They think that God can be appeased by something that we do. And it doesn't work like that. There's no escaping his wrath. And meanwhile, the storm's getting worse. We've got to get this under control. It's, what are we going to do here? Tell us how to handle this. And his response is, verse 12 He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So just the bluntness of his statement. He's like, just chuck me in the sea and you guys will be fine. He has reached the point. he, He recognizes what's happening and he's willing to... There's an interesting comparison. Jonah was not willing to go to Nineveh in order to potentially show mercy to the Ninevites, but he is willing to give up his life for these men on this boat. This sort of, you see this sort of false dichotomy with Jonah. But he's, he's, this is how this ends. You throw me over. Right? Better that I die than all of us die. And as far as Jonah knows, this will be death for him. 
You, you don't get thrown into an, a sea that is raging and expect to survive. That doesn't happen in our modern day with all the technology and all the helps we have for people, let alone then. And the interesting thing as you think upon it, like, well, Jonah is deserving of death. He is in direct rebellion against God. He is in open sin against God. He has chosen to flee from God instead of do God's will. He is deserving of it. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have the correct punishment for sin against God is death. And that is where Jonah's at here. He's like, I have sinned against God. The correct punishment, if you get rid of me, you will be okay. But you see their unwillingness to just give up just yet. It says, verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So they're not willing to throw Jonah overboard at first. Like, okay, yes, you've done this thing, but let's, let's give it one last try. We don't, we don't want to kill you. We'd rather not have to do that. So we're going we're gonna to try to reach land. Right, So they're real hard to get back to dry land. So as I'm looking at this, this map that we have up here, and it's such a big, the Mediterranean Sea is such a large area, they must not have been too far from land. right? So if they're in a place where they are like, well, maybe we can row and we can get some land. right? They can't be too far away. Apparently they're three days' journey by fish from, from dry land. That we know. So they don't want to kill him. They put in this last-ditch effort to reach shore, but they're providentially hindered, right? God is against them doing that because it says, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, right? We know God is in control of the storm, and as they're trying to make a break for land, the sea just keeps getting worse. And this is like, this is maybe the second or third time here we've heard, the storm is getting worse, Right? It's like, oh, it's bad enough the ship breaking up. It's getting worse. It's getting worse more. It just continues to increase in intensity. And you see in verse 14, maybe some of their reasoning. It says, therefore, they called out to the Lord. And there you see the capital L-O-R-D, right? So this is not to some pagan god. They are using the name of Jonah's god of Yahweh, Jehovah. And it says, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Right? So they're concerned that they are going to be held accountable for throwing Jonah into the sea and him dying. Right? They they, don't put this on us. We have tried everything we can to not kill this man. And we are left with no choice if we want to preserve our lives. Right? But here you see they are, I don't, I'm not really surprised that they're willing to pray to the God of Jonah, to the one true God, because they were already like, oh, let's pray to your God, let's pray to this God, let's pray to any God we think will help us. And like, well, this is the God in control of this storm. We're going to pray to him. We will try to appeal to him. We are willing to talk to him. 
and they've reached the point where they've, we've exhausted every situation and scenario where it seems this must be the thing to do in this situation. This is the will of God. We've been left with no other choice. It says, because it says, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you, right? Every time we try to get out of throwing him over, the storm gets stronger. And then you get the confirmation of that, right? Verse 15, they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. This gives, implies that it was quick. Like they throw him over and the storm subsides. Um, pointing to that, yes, you were correct. It was God in control of the storm. And that is what it was going to bring an end to it was this man Jonah being cast overboard. Psalm 65, verse 7 says, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people? Right? Who has control over the seas? Well, it is, it is God. It is the Lord God. And then you have, I had mentioned, instance with Christ. That is in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. And it says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. They went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? So we have Christ has power over the storms, as displayed here. We, and this is the account I was talking about, where Christ is asleep in the ship, and the storm's going, and they have to go wake him, because he is so secure in his power over the storm that he can sleep through it, because he doesn't have to be concerned about it. So then, verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So this instance that they've been in has shown them the God of Jonah is the God with power. He has authority. Like we've, It's been made clear to them. And they fear God exceedingly, right? And once again, this is not fear of necessarily like cowering in a corner kind of fear. Not that there's not an appropriate amount of like being actually afraid, but there is this reverence, this honor, this worship, um, this recognition of who they are in comparison to who God is. That they are, they are subservient to him. He will do his will, and they, they can do nothing against it. Um, they recognized the authority of God. And it says, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's interesting thinking about that last section there where it says they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and, and sort of playing around in my head like, 
So did Jonah explain to them, like, well, here's how you sacrifice to God, and here's how you make vows? Or is it they had systems where they were used to offering sacrifices to their gods, but they recognized, well, this God is worthy of sacrifice in this instance. I'll be curious when I get to eternity if the men on the boat with Jonah will be there. I won't be surprised if they are, but I won't be surprised if they're not. It's not like it's not perfectly clear one way or the other. But it seems that there is there is definitely an acknowledgement here of who God is, and the fact that they made vows. It could be vows to offer more sacrifices when they get to where there is more means for sacrifice. Because remember, they were throwing their cargo off the ship, so they may not have had much to offer for sacrifices. Or it could be they said, well, this, the God of Jonah is, is the true God, and we will, we will now swear our allegiance to him. It's not perfectly clear there, so that little bit is left up in the air, at least in my eyes. So I'm going to get into verse 17 and chapter 2 next week, but you, I guess I can't not resolve this story. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Right? So God has control over the seas. He has control over the storm. And it says he appointed a fish, a great fish, to swallow up Jonah. So there was, he has control over this great fish in the sea. It was in the right place at the right time, not by happenstance, but by the appointment of God, by his sovereign control. So as we look through that first chapter of Jonah, we see the sovereignty of God on display here. We see his control over the seas. In that last verse 17, we see his control over animals. He has complete control over the, over the created world. When we see, we, are, we will see as we go further into the book of Jonah that God is merciful and he is long-suffering. Because, and even in verse 17 where it says, Jonah's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The sailors thought Jonah would surely die when they threw him overboard. They thought this was a death sentence for him. And rightly so, it, it should have been, right? God would have been fully just to, to take Jonah's life then. Yet, God preserves Jonah's life because he has more for Jonah to do. And he shows Jonah mercy. The mercy that Jonah did not desire to show to the Ninevites. God is showing Jonah mercy. He, yeah, Jonah's lack of concern for the Ninevites, his selfishness, it can be understood. Ninevites are enemies of Israel. They are not a nice people. And yet there's this command of God. It brought to mind, so whenever Moses is talking with God in the book of Exodus and Moses wants God to, you know, reveal yourself to me, God. Who is this that is giving me instructions as I lead these people, right? And one of the things God says there is, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, right? It is God's choice on who he will be gracious to. It is God's choice on who he will be merciful to. 
as in the case of the Ninevites, as in Jonah's case. That is, God is sovereign in that. He gets to choose. And we see that God deals with sin. Jonah was in sin, fleeing from the Lord's presence. He doesn't let Jonah just go off and like, oh, well, I guess too bad Jonah got away. I'll have to find someone else to go to Nineveh, right? Like, no, you're going to do this, Jonah. And not only will you go to Nineveh still, but you're going to get to go for a ride in the belly of a fish for three days, right? It's not going to be pleasant. There are consequences for sin. And yet, God spares Jonah, and he uses Jonah. And so, how do we apply this, right? How do we look at this? I I don't know anybody here who's trying to run from the presence of God necessarily, but none of us is without sin. Um, and we all experience the mercy of God. To be, to be grateful to him and his graciousness to us. Um, and there's, I've read some things as I was going through this, that you know, Jonah is like an anti-type of Christ, which means he's like, the opposite of Christ, right? So Christ is merciful and long-suffering. He takes the punishment. Jonah is trying to get out of this, and there's still he's in the belly of the whale for three days, um, much as Christ said he would be in the, the tomb for three days. Um, but just this, this mercifulness of God and his sovereignty over all things is is my takeaway from this, this first chapter. Um, all right. I'll close with the word of prayer. And Dear Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the message that is presented in the book of Jonah. We are thankful for your mercy, your long-suffering, that there are none of us who can stand before you without sin. It is only through Christ that we can do that. And we are thankful for your graciousness to us um, in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn 676. We're just going to sing one verse as the deacons come and get ready for communion. Just one verse of the song, face to face. 676. Face to face with Christ my Savior Face to face what will it be When with rapture I behold Him, Jesus Christ, who died for me Face to face I shall behold him Far beyond the starry sky Face to face in all his glory I shall see him by and by 
I've always been able to quote this. I'm going to read it to make sure I get it right. But um, Psalm 27, verse 4 is David's response to what he wants to do with his life. And he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I look for, that I may live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to observe the Lord's loveliness and to meditate in His temple. And I think um, when we come to church here, we, we come to, in a sense, get a glimpse of God from the Scriptures and have an opportunity to sing to Him. And when we do the communion, we're getting an opportunity, in a sense, to look at God and to, uh, to respond to Him, to decide where we stand with Him and to take care of, as Greg talked about, sin that we might have in our life, to make sure that we're right with God and that uh, we desire so much than to see His face. This morning, that's an opportunity. When these disciples got together, they were looking at Jesus Christ. They were seeing him, and he was breaking bread and and uh, giving them juice. And uh, we have to sometimes think in that way that this is our opportunity to come face to face with God in a unique way to consider where we are with God, and then to commune with him over something that he described that we should do. And we're going to do that this morning on my word prayer. Gracious Father, we're so thankful for your goodness. We love you, and, and Lord, we, we know we're not always where we need to be, that we have things in our life that are sin and that keep us away from you. And, and Lord, we don't want to stay there, so help us to get that right with you. Help us as we approach you through communion that we might truly look upon you and see, as David said, the beauty of the Lord or the loveliness of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to see that today as we spend this time with you in communion. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.
As they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Gave it to his disciples, saying, Take eat, this is my body. Eat you all. He also, in, in finishing this, then decides that he will take of the cup and give him thanks, gave it to them so that they can drink of it together. Once again, that personal touch with these, just as it is his personal touch with you today. As we were, they were thankful and they sang. We'll sing, Thank you, Lord, as we stand together. Thank you. 